About once a year, it's uh, so fun for me because my brother Tim <clears throat> comes to town. And Tim, his wife Anna, and their three kids pastor a church in Stanwood, Washington, which is about 60 miles north of Seattle. It's a rural setting. And Tim and I, we're seven and a half years apart, but we've just been best friends for our whole lives. And so he comes out here in the fall, mainly because he loves you, but also <laughs> because there are many elk in Montana. <laughs> but mainly because of you, right? Yeah. 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 This is just auxiliary, <clears throat> the whole thing. Yeah. Absolutely. So Tim's a great Bible teacher. I love having him. Um, I was really challenged by the message that he brought. So Tim, we're thrilled to have you. Welcome. I love you, brother. Thanks, bro. Thank you, Faith Chapel, for allowing me to be here. I just want to thank you for being a big-hearted church. Thanks for planting churches in Bozeman, and I know there's other cities you guys are targeting now. Thank you for doing that, having online streaming. Welcome those who are watching online that you can do. It's a resource to us uh, around the, the, the country, around the world. So thank you for that. And then you got a pretty good pastor, too. You know, Nate says we've been friends our whole lives. Uh, yeah, that's worth a shout-out right there. I was like 10 when him and Jenny got married. So we've kind of really kind of rediscovered each other's friendship uh, in our adulthood. And uh, Nate and I have an interesting relationship. Uh, I worked for him for about 10-plus years. Uh, so he's been my boss. He's been my big brother. He's been one of my great friends. And he's also been a mentor. And he's been a pastor for me. Uh, so he's just a good dude. And sometimes I find myself... Uh, in meetings or even preaching a sermon, and I'll be like, oh my goodness, I'm sounding like Nate. And uh, there's worse things to do than to sound like Nate. So that's good. And my parents are here as well. So thank you for taking care of my family and loving them well and uh, for being a big hearted church. Well, we're going to be in the book of Exodus today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20. The uh, passage will be on the screen here as well. But have you ever thought about living in another time, another place? Maybe you've had like this as a icebreaker kind of question. Like if you could live in a point in history, when would that point of history be? Or if you could live any famous person's life, who would it be? There's, there's something in us that we're fascinated about other people's lives. We're fascinated about what it would be like to live another existence beyond our own. And I think for me, if you wanted to sum up, like, what's the one time or place in history or another person's life that I could live, it's summed up in the great Robert Redford film, Jeremiah Johnson. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's the greatest film in human history. It's like two and a half hours long, and there's maybe two sentences of dialogue. It's just Robert Redford out in the, in the mountains being a mountain man, trying to survive. And it just sounds so glorious and romantic, but actually the more you read and the more you study about being a mountain man, you realize that they were... A lot of them died from cold and starvation. And then uh, a lot of them went mentally insane just from the isolation and being alone. And then there were no women. And so they were really weird because uh, <laughs> ladies, God put uh, us to be together in community. And so we kind of lived that. What would it be like to live somebody else's life? And in Exodus chapter 20, where we're going to be, we find the Ten Commandments. The commands that God gave to his people who he instructs them on how to live. And where we're at in the biblical story, the narrative is in, in the passages leading up to this Exodus 20, is God's people, the nation of Israel, find themselves in Egypt. And they've been slaves for 400 years under the Egyptian regime, under the hand of Pharaoh. And God hears the people's cries to be delivered out of slavery. And God raises up a leader, a person named Moses, and Moses leads God's people out 
of Israel. And they're on this great, or excuse me, out of Egypt. They're on this great road trip out of Egypt, and they're on their way to this place called the Promised Land. And the Bible tells us that the Promised Land is a place flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. It's God's best for his people. It's the place where he wants to be his, their God and he wants to be their people and, and God will be king and they'll follow him. But in the midst of this journey from Egypt to the promised land, God interacts with them. And I want you to notice something. If you've never looked at this when you look at the Ten Commandments, is we can think that God, some of us have a perception of God as being a God of rules and God wants to make sure you have no fun in your life. But I want you to catch this. God delivers the people out of slavery. He delivers them. He brings them into relationship. And about three months, 90 days into this journey from Egypt to the promised land, God meets him, his people at Mount Sinai, and he gives them these 10 commandments. So before the rules ever came, God brought deliverance. And remember that God loves you before you ever behave. And that's the nature of who God is. So he brings his people out and he says, here's the commands. Here's the, the way that you need to live. Because 400 years of slavery for a culture, they had forgotten how to live. They had forgotten how to interact with one another. And God has to reestablish some basic rules of engagement about how to live together in community. And here we have the Ten Commandments. And you'll see these, no other gods, no graven images. Do not misuse the Lord's name. Keep the Sabbath. And those first four commandments, those are all about how we relate to God. And so in these Ten Commandments, God says, here's the first four things. Is you can only worship me. You can't carve an image of me to try to make me small in, in, in a defined image. I'm much bigger than that. You can't misuse the Lord's name. Carry my name with respect and dignity. And then keep the Sabbath that God says, I've created you to rest. And then the last six of the commandments are all about how our interpersonal relationships, how we interact with each other. Honor your father and mother. And that says here, do not commit adultery. Uh, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, and do not covet. And I want to look, spend our time here on that 10th commandment, do not covet. And what's interesting about those six commandments about interpersonal relationships, all of them have to do with action, like don't murder, don't commit adultery. Um, this thing of honoring father and mother, it's something you do, it's an action-based command. But... This last command, do not covet, it's much more different. It's hard to measure whether someone's coveting or not, right? Have you ever been like, oh, you're really coveting today? It's hard to tell. So it's this matter of our hearts. It's about what's going on in our inner lives. And so God gives his people this thing. He says, hey, one of the most, 10 most important things is that you would not covet. And so let's read this together. And God not only says don't covet, some of the commands just like don't murder, but God's going to give us some explanation of what he means. And so here we are, Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so God only just says don't covet, but then he gives us some examples of what it means. And he starts with this. He starts, you can't covet your neighbor's house. Anybody have any house envy? Right? We all do. That's why shows like HGTV, this is why Martha Stewart can go to prison and will still buy her magazine. Right? Because we all want our houses to look beautiful and wonderful and welcoming and so great and wonderful. And, but I, I, 
I'll admit, man, I kind of love dreaming about living somewhere else, you know, especially come February in Seattle when we haven't seen the sun for 377 days. We're like, oh, have you ever seen these pictures of maybe this, um, this house, maybe in a tropical or a, a southwest hot environment, and there's this beautiful kitchen, and that beautiful kitchen flows into this living room, and then there's these massive bank of windows but they're not just windows, they're also doors. And the, the wall totally moves and the outside simply flows into the outside where there's a beautiful patio and some wonderful palm trees. And then there's this great infinity edge pool with a cool water fountain thing deal. I bet you February that kind of looks nice around here too, right? We, we think that would be so great. But have you ever noticed any pictures you see like that? Of, of a beautiful house, you know what the one thing that's missing? is people. We love to look, make our houses look like nobody lives there. Have you ever seen a bathroom? And you think like that would be the beautiful spa retreat for me. Look at that toilet. I would love to go there. But the minute you do, <laughs> what happens? The minute you do there, you destroy it. And it's not the same ever again. So we've created these false, false realities of like, oh, I want to live there. And then God says, hey, you can't covet your neighbor's spouse, husband or wife. And for some of us, well, this is not just a, a kind of a joking matter, but it's something that really consumes us. We think, I wonder what it would be like to be married to that person. You know, man, she seems to really care about her husband. and She, she, she doesn't tell him all the things they can't do. She actually says, hey, we can do some of those things. We can have some dreams. We can have some ambitions. She seems to really appreciate that, even has some hobbies. And then maybe on the other side, you say, man, he seems to really listen. He seems to be engaged in what's going on in their home. And he participates in raising the children. And we think, oh, my life would be so much better if I was married to that person. And God says, we can't even go there. It's not good for us. The, these 10 commandments, I like to call them this. I like to call them the promised land plan. God says, in the promised land, how you relate to me, God says, and how you relate to each other is going to be so different because in the promised land is a place of freedom and it's God's best for us. And God thought this was so important to put it in the top 10 that says, you, you can't covet your neighbor's stuff. You can't covet their, their house or their spouse. And then God says you can't covet their, their, their servants. And in an agrarian culture in this time in history, that would have represented the ability to have wealth. It would have represented the ability to produce more than your family could, could merely eat. It meant that you had workers who could help you and you could make a living and provide. And then God even goes on. He says don't covet your neighbor's oxen or donkey. And your oxen would have helped you plow your fields. But the donkeys, you know what that would have represented? Both the oxen and donkeys. Not only were your ability to produce, but then your ability to get what you've produced to the market to sell it. So it was a sign of wealth. And one of the things that I struggle with every time I come to Montana is I covet in my heart a little bit because I think the modern version of donkeys is trucks. And you guys have a lot of trucks here in Montana. <laughs> And really nice trucks, too. And, oh, man, I would love to have a nice truck someday. It's like a dream for me. I'd love to do it. Diligently saving for it. And, in fact, in my church, I watch all the dudes in my church. And when I see somebody gets a new truck, 
I noticed, let me tell you. And uh, there, there was a guy who had like the awesome truck. I was like, that's the truck I've always dreamed of. And then about two months ago, a guy got a new truck. And I go, oh boy, let me, I saw you got a new truck. Let me show you. He's like, yeah, come on, we'll check it out. And he starts showing me his truck and it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my whole life. It has a power tailgate. You don't have to do this anymore. So inconvenient. So inconvenient. I'm like, my life is incomplete. And then you open the door and like the step comes down. I don't even have to extend myself to step up into the truck. I've been missing out. My life is incomplete. It's like, this is so amazing. And I come out here and everybody's got really nice trucks that are lifted and high. But here's the great thing about in Montana. You actually use your trucks. It's pretty funny in Seattle to watch somebody in a big F-350 idling at five miles an hour going down I-5 in Seattle traffic for three hours. It doesn't make sense. You guys at least use your trucks. It's so great. But, but that's part of this whole deal. And it kind of leads me to this point of this is, is what's the difference between admiring and coveting? Because I think we all like to see nice things and we like to see people have nice things. And, and it's fun to say, oh, you got a new truck. I'm so happy for you. Oh, you remodeled your house. How beautiful. I love the choices you made. Oh, look at that. That's great. You laid it out so wonderful. But, but isn't there a fine line when it can go from being happy for someone to like, I really want that. And maybe here's two questions that can help us kind of define the line between admiring and coveting, this thing that God says, hey, this just isn't the best for you. Maybe the first question is this. I'm less than because I don't have fill in the blank. I'm less than because I don't have. I think we could all look at a time in our lives when we saw something or observed something or watched somebody and we thought, Man, I was just at their house, and their house is beautiful and great, and they remodeled it, and it's all good. And you walk away, and you think, I can't provide for my family like that. And you feel less than. You somehow diminish yourself. Or maybe this other question is this, is, is I, would be, I would be complete if I were, fill in the blank, married to him, married to her. I'd be complete if I had their kids and not mine. You've thought it before, haven't you? <laughs> you know, I'd be complete if I had that job. I'd be complete if I were in this way or another. And, and something in us diminishes ourselves. We think that I am less than. I'm not complete. I'm not whole. There's something missing in us. And I think this is why God put this in the top 10 things of his best plan for us. It's because so often this can consume us about saying, oh, I wish I had something else. I'm not complete. I'm not enough. And I think, I know for me, I can look back at seasons of my life where I saw somebody who had something or wished I was in that relationship. And I asked these questions and I realized that I died a little bit inside. I thought, man, I, I don't measure up. And it's a challenge for us because we live in a culture this is, our culture tells us this all the time, and, and advertising tells us this. If you're in advertising, boy, keep doing a good job. Just tithe to the church. But here's what advertising tells us, is you would be more well-liked. You would be 
more appreciated. You would be better if you had that car, if you bought this thing, if you used this item. It's telling us that we are less than unless we're not using the thing that they're trying to sell us. And this is not just a modern problem that we face today in the advertising cultural world we live in. This is a human problem. You know the first advertising scheme in all human history is found in the Bible? In Genesis, in the creation narrative, in the first early chapters of the story of humanity, Adam and Eve get sold an advertising scheme by Satan himself who comes in the form of a certain serpent. And he says, Adam and Eve, you're not complete. You would be better if you were. If you ate from the tree that God said you couldn't, you would be complete, you would be whole, you would be like God. You would be enough. And they took the bait, they believed the lie, and they ate from the tree, and sin entered the world. And from that moment on, each of us has this thing of coveting in our hearts. It's in our lives. And we sit around and we think, I would be full. I would be whole. I'd be enough if I just had whatever it would be. And I'm not just talking about possessions. I think this affects our relationships. And I think it affects our health. Just a few weeks ago, uh, at one of our services, I saw a young man who I had graduated from high school a few years before and had headed off to college. And he had an athletic scholarship and I'd kind of lost contact with him. And I saw that he was back in church. And I ran up to him and said, how you doing? And I could see in that moment, he wasn't the same kid that we sent away a couple of years before. And he began to just tell me the story of what had happened over the last year of his life. He was at college living on, living on top of the world and living this independent life and being an athlete and studying. And he began to have seizures and he was unable to compete and he had to forfeit his athletic scholarship. And now he finds himself living at home and he can't even drive himself to the store. He can't drive, he has no freedom. And he said, Tim, I sit around and all I think about is what life used to be like. And I think and I mourn about what all my friends are doing. And I just think how stuck I am in my own life and my heart broke for him in the moment of just being stuck and embracing the new reality that he found himself in. And this thing of coveting, it's a matter of our hearts. And if this gets into us, it's very dangerous. The great writer of the Proverbs, a great wisdom writer, here's what he said in Proverbs 4. He says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything we do flows from this inner life. It flows from out of our lives. And if this is the default for what is in us, and our culture is defaulted towards being covetedness, being coveters, our culture is defaulted towards that. And if this is in our heart, everything flows from it. And if this is in us, th this can be the way we begin to perceive the world. We look around and we think things are so easy for them, but they're hard for me. Man, they get all the breaks and all the advantages. They get recognized at work and they get the promotion and I get left behind. You can think, man, they just had that baby and they lost the weight. They look better than when they had the baby. That's so unfair. 
We, we begin to compare and judge ourselves compared to those around us. And we think they have all their opportunities. opportunities. And ultimately, this is what can creep into our inner lives. We think God is kind and loving and fair to everyone else but to me. That God blesses everyone else, but somehow he won't bless me. And if this gets into our lives, it changes everything. And if you feel ripped off by God, we can justify all kinds of behaviors and patterns and attitudes in our lives. If we really feel that God's not fair to us. But the good news, there's a remedy to this thing that lives in each of us. There's a remedy, there's hope, and the scriptures give us hope. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter four, which is written thousands of years later, after Exodus 20, by the apostle Paul, who is a missionary who had gone around uh, most of the known Roman empire at that time and planted churches, brought the kingdom of God and, and taught the good news of Jesus. And here's what he says in the book of Philippians uh, when he's writing to the church in Philippi. And this may be the most out of quoted verse in all of the scriptures, but here's what he says. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And we need to understand that Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He's most likely in prison writing this, in chains. He's been persecuted. He's been had rocks thrown at him until he was dead. Life has been hard and difficult for Paul. And he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And the church in Philippi had loved Paul. They had wanted to support him, but there had been some separation and inability for them to send help and support. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content. And I wonder if content is the opposite of coveting. In any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then here's the verse that you've probably heard before. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, or I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe you've seen that on an athlete's eyes or tattooed on their uh, arm. And, and we've often used that verse that says, I can do all things. I can have athletic prowess. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. But what is Paul telling us? I can do all things rich or poor. I can do all things having enough or not having enough. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Paul tells us, here's the secret of contentment. So I think this is the remedy for us in the culture that we live in, in the thing that is in our heart. The first thing is this. How do we learn that secret of contentment that Paul talks about? Is guard your heart. Guard your heart. We have a responsibility to be responsible for all how we live and what happens in our inner lives. Paul writes to the, to the church in Philippi and he says, hey, I know that you guys have been concerned for me and I know you just weren't able to show it, but that's okay. I'm not saying this to manipulate you or try to make things happen, but I've learned the secret to be content. So what does Paul do? He says, I've taken responsibility for my life. It is not your responsibility to provide for me. I've learned to be content. And many of us, we live a life and we want to put responsibility and blame on everyone else except on our own lives. We have a responsibility. 
We have a responsibility for what happens in our lives, what gets into us. And that's something that we need to guard seriously. One of the characteristics that defines followers of Jesus throughout the scriptures and throughout the last 2,000 years of human history, of church history, is this. Those people who are seriously followers and disciples of Jesus, they have the ability, like Paul, to rise above the circumstances and experience joy and contentment even when things are very difficult. And this is one of the things God wants for his people is that we can rise above the circumstances and all of a sudden then our circumstances don't dictate our reality. So if life's hard, I can have joy. If life's good, I can have joy. We can have joy in any and every situations when we really guard our hearts and take, resp- take responsibility for what's happening in our inner lives. The second thing that Paul tells us is this. Learn to be content. Contentment is a learned behavior. This is not something that comes naturally to us. We have to learn how to do it. We're going to read in another, passage, in another translation of the same passage in a little bit, and it says that Paul says, I've learned the recipe of being content. And, and if you've ever cooked before, right, what's the thing you have to do? You have to add something in. You got to taste it. You got to get it to the right levels of spice and, and seasoning. If you watch those cooking shows where they judge people, they'll bring a plate of food to the judge, and the judge will taste it. And if it's not seasoned enough or if it's too salty, they'll say, did you taste your food? And the minute the chef says, no, I didn't have time, the judge is like, ah, what's wrong with you? How can you present food to me without knowing what it tastes like? And for us, we have to taste our lives. We have to kind of taste our inner lives and be like, mm, that tastes real covetedness today. We got to add some contentment. It's our responsibility to always be stirring it up and always be tasting our lives and see where we're at on our journey. And so as part of this learned behavior, I'm just going to give us some real practical do's and don'ts. These are things that I've learned from my own life and I've learned from watching people. And the first one is this. Limit your media. Limit your media. Most media is fueled by advertising. And advertising tells you you'd be happier if you had that thing. Limit your media. We're getting ready to go into the woods after the service and go elk hunting. I'm excited. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to leave it in the truck. And you know, after a couple of days and being in the wood, you know what? I'm going to come out excited that I'm alive. (laughs) Not wishing I had more things. And it's good for our souls to just kind of limit the media that gets into us. Because when we're bombarded with it, it can get into our inner lives. Second thing, don't window shop. Going to the mall to just look is not helpful. All right? And one of the things that I've learned as I was preparing and studying for the messages, I've learned that a lot of my entertainment is based on me shopping and researching and justifying, thinking I would be better if I just had. Many of us, we window shop as part of our entertainment. That's probably not good for our souls. Now, I looked online, and you guys have a golden corral here. Probably none of you will admit it, but it's a big buffet, all place you can go, get all the food you can eat. And uh, the one that they have near us, you walk in the door, and uh, there's a giant chocolate fountain. And you just sit there and you think, This is going to get real, real quick here. Because you're thinking, what could I dip in that chocolate fountain? Fried chicken, salmon, beef. 
you know what, can we, we're going to experiment here, right? And if you were going on a diet, if you were trying to, that's, that's not the place to go. It's just too tempting. Going and shopping and spending thousands of hours on Amazon is not the helpful thing. Don't window shop. Live within your means. Buy cash with as many things as you can. There's something that happens when you save up for something and you're able to buy it. There's this sense of accomplishment. There's this sense of like, I'm content with this because I worked hard for this and I saved it and I appreciate it. So live within your means. Buy with cash when you can. Don't just go test drive things. Don't just go test drive cars because one day, I guarantee you, you will sit down in a car and you'll be like, they specifically designed this for my bottom. It fits me perfectly. And you know, this poor salesman, he's not, uh, this salesperson, he's not going to meet his numbers this week unless I accept this $750 a month car payment. And it would be wrong of me to make this guy not meet his numbers this month. I got to feed his family. It's my responsibility, right? We can justify all kinds of things. Uh, If you're struggling with houses, don't go, uh, just don't go to open houses just because. Open houses are fascinating. It's the only time in our legal system that you can go into somebody's house and not get arrested for it, not invited. (laughs) When a neighbor sells their house, isn't that the most fascinating thing? Open house, like I want to go see what happens behind those doors. But don't do that if you're struggling and be like, oh, our house is horrible, right? Don't, don't, don't do that. It's not helpful for you. Early in my wife and I's marriage, my, my wife, Anne, is amazing. We've married 16 years. And early in our marriage, we got advice from someone. It might have been Nate. might have been one of our mentors. And they said, freeze your credit card. And they literally meant go home, put a Tupperware, put the credit card in the middle of it, fill it with water, and put it in the freezer. And we did that. And it helped us because there was a lot of things we thought, oh, we need that, we need that. Things that were outside of the normal monthly budget. And what we learned is this, it helped us to slow down our decision making. And so we'd say, okay, do we need to buy new or buy used? What are we going to do? Because if there was something that we really wanted, we had to go home and thaw out this block of ice. And I don't even remember what it was, but I remember that I think our first, maybe second year of marriage, there was something that I needed so bad. And I went home and I pulled out the credit card and I put it in the microwave. But what you don't know about credit cards is they have metal in them. And so it destroyed the microwave and the credit card. And you know what's amazing? I'm still here. We survived whatever that thing that I thought was so important that I couldn't wait for that block of, mel- um, block of ice to melt. We made it here and it has been so helpful. Slow down your decision-making process. Be, uh, those are just some things to, to some don'ts. And now here's some things to do. If you want to have contentment in your life, this learned behavior, be thankful. Be thankful. The scripture tells us time and time again that a grateful heart is good for us. Just like contentment can get in our inner lives, watch out because if thankfulness gets in your inner life, whew, good things can begin to happen. Be thankful. Uh, I know just recently I took a ride uh, with a friend. They came and picked me up to lunch and they just got this brand new nice car and I get in their car to go to lunch and I'm just like, this is amazing. This is wonderful. And they drop me off back at the office and I go to my car and I look at it and be like, you worthless piece of metal. (laughs) I literally like kicked it just out of frustration. And just in that moment, you know, I'm just like, no, I gotta be thankful. So what if if we instead of kicking our car and being like, you worthless, I said, God, thank you that you've given me a car that starts 51% of the time. (laughs) Lord, thank you that I only have two bald tires. Lord, thank you that my windshield only has 37 cracks on it. Lord, it just changes our perspective, right? 
Be thankful for all the things we have. We need to realize how much we have. And I know this doesn't feel like it, but just the fact that you and I live in North America, we've won the lottery, and it doesn't feel like this, but we're the top 1% and 2% wealthiest people in all the world. We're so wealthy that most of us have a house for our car. It's called a garage. And it's so filled with other junk that we can't put our car in it. We have so much, so be thankful. Realize how much we have. So often when we think about coveting, we think about everybody who has more than us. One of the things that's good is to sometimes turn around and realize, wow, I have so much more than others. It changes our perspective. Another thing, here's a do. Go on a missions trip. If you get the opportunity to do that, go to the developing world and see what God is doing. It'll change your heart. My wife and I have made a diligent effort. We've saved money and it's affected our budget and our bottom line that we take our kids on mission trips multiple times in their adolescence because I want them to remember that they are blessed, that God has given them so much. Sponsor a child. That can be a great practical thing. Our family sponsors several children uh, in the Dominican Republic through Food for the Hungry. And this is a picture of one of our sponsored kids. His name is Raylin. And for the last five years, me or my wife, every other year, we get an opportunity to go see him. And uh, he's really a happy kid, but every picture they send of us, he is just the saddest sack on the planet. <laughs> and let me tell you, this is a great tool in our home to remember, to remind me to be thankful. So his picture's on the fridge, and when I go to the fridge, like, there's nothing to eat, but there's tons to eat. I would just have to make it. And I just, I just, I, and I close the door, and then I'm like, oh, God, I'm grateful Raylan doesn't even have a refrigerator. And it's really effective with raising my children. Because all three of, two of the three have gone down to meet him. And uh, when they're all sad, I'm like, oh, I wish I had this thing. I grab him and I say, come here. Shut up and be grateful. <laughs> this is little Raylan. Remember, you were down at his house and you walked in and, you're, and they're like, oh, you're right, dad. Thank you. It is an effective parenting tool. Okay. <laughs> it's helpful for us. It changes our perspective. You and I need to remember that your stuff, material things, do not give us our identity. We bring our identity to stuff. And then I want to read, we're going to end here, but I want to read this same passage in uh, the message. Eugene Peterson was a great pastor, and he translated the scripture for his congregation to understand. He said this, I'm glad in God, far happier than you would have ever guessed. I've learned how to be quite content, whatever my circumstances I'm just as happy with little as with much and with much as with little. I found the recipe, we talked about that, the recipe for being happy, whether full or angry, hands full or hands empty. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. And contentment is not only something that we need to guard our hearts for, it's a learned behavior, but really here's what contentment is. It is God's gift to us. It is God's gift to us. Jesus came to this world, God's son with human form, and he lived among us. He lived a sinless life. He went to the cross and he died for you so that you could have a right relationship with God. Jesus didn't come to this world and give his life so that you could spend all your time wishing you lived somebody else's life. He came for you just as you are right now in whatever situation you find yourself in. 
Jesus came to redeem and restore us right where we are, right when we are, right how we are. And if we spend all of our time and energy wishing and dreaming and anticipating and hoping for something else to live someone else's life, we so diminish the redemptive power of God in us. And it really comes down to our identity. And Paul says this, I've learned the secret of contentment because this, I found the one who makes me who I am. And this is the gift that God wants to give you today. He wants to give you the gift that says, I love you just as you are. That you can be content. You can rise above the circumstance and experience happiness and joy and contentment even when the world around us is freaked out. It's a gift that God wants to give us. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says this. He says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. Life to the fullest. And life to the fullest doesn't mean that we sit around wishing that we had what we don't. Life to the fullest means I embrace the contentment that God has given me in this time and this place. Can we pray together? Lord, thank you that you are a kind and loving and generous God. And Lord, thank you that you understand the brokenness that each of us face. That there's something in us our nature, our sinful nature is bent towards wanting someone else's life. And God, I pray that you would help us to guard our hearts. I pray that you would help us to learn new patterns and behaviors. Lord, to learn contentment. And God, I also pray that today you would give us the gift, the miraculous gift of contentment. And God, our world is desperate for this. Our world is desperate to think that we can just be content. That we don't always have to be driving for bigger, better, newer things. But God, we can be content in who you made us to be. In the one who makes me who I am. God, thank you for that gift. And I don't know where you're at on your spiritual journey, but maybe some of you, you've you find yourself here today and you've been a God-fearer, you've been a church attender, but you've seen these people who, who are real disciples and they have the ability to rise above the circumstances. And you've said, God, I've always wanted that. And I wonder if the reason you can't do that is because this coveting thing has gotten into your heart and you've got to replace that with contentment. And then maybe others of us, I wonder if today's the day of salvation. And you say, man, I want to have that. I want to rise above the circumstances. <laughs> I want to be content. And I want to know that God died for me, that Jesus came to this earth. And I want to give him my life and surrender everything I have to him. And what it means when you raise your hand, I'm going to ask you in a few moments. It means this. It says, God, I want to put you on the throne. Maybe for some of you, you're going to say, God, I need that gift of contentment today. And that might be the point of salvation, the point where God meets you. And says, today everything's going to be different from here on because I want to give you the gift of salvation. I want to give you the gift of contentment. I want to give you the gift to rise above the circumstances and not let what's going on around you dictate your reality. If that's you today, I'd love you to raise your hand and say, man, I want that. I want God's grace and mercy in my life. Yeah, I see your hand. One, two, three, right there. Yes, I see your hand back there. Yes, I want to make sure I grab your eye. Yeah, I see you, sir. Yes, two gentlemen in the back, I see you. Yeah, waving your hat, I see you. 
Amen. Uh, my right, your left. I want to make sure I don't miss anybody. Yeah, I see you. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I see you, ma'am. Thank you for waving your hand. Yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. God, yes, thank you for what you're doing. I don't want to miss way. Up in the balcony. Yeah, thank you. I see your hand. God, thank you for what you're doing at hearts. In the middle, right there. Thank you. I see you. Yeah, right there. Two by, right beside each other. Amen. God, thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, Lord, thank you that people are turning their hearts. Would you give us the gift of salvation? Would you give us the gift of contentment? Yes, sir, I see you. Lord, thank you for what you're doing in hearts. You're stirring people. Lord, give us the gift of contentment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.